The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, Film Jitsu. Mike with a brief interruption before we get started to apologize for the quality of my audio on this week's episode. We had a technical error that made it sound like I was coming to you from deep within the space between Zack Snyder's ears. You may be asking, Mike, haven't you been podcasting for a long time? Yes. Isn't this something that you probably should have caught when it was happening? Also, yes. Is there anything you can do about it? Certainly not. So here we are. I assure you that our upcoming episodes sound great. We figured out the glitches. So thank you for your patience. Please enjoy Time Cop. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. I am Jay. On this week's episode of Film Jitsu, Jason is going to review the sci-fi masterpiece starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, Time Cop. We're also going to do our bottom five time travels. We'll give you some staff picks and then Jason will reveal what movie I have to watch for our upcoming episode. So Jay, are you here with us in the present? You've spent the last week traveling through time, time copping forward and backwards and all kinds of things. I, I, do you have a mullet, I guess? Where are we, where are we style-wise? Do you know, I, wanna, I think one of the most important things that we have to talk about when we talk about time cop is Jean-Claude Van Damme's hair. Because it might be among the best hairstyles I have ever seen in motion picture history. Wow. And I'm talking about later day. Jean-Claude Van Damme and not early Jean-Claude Van Damme because early Jean-Claude Van Damme had exactly the same haircut that I had in 1994. Ooh, school pictures, right? Like, oh, I, I bet. So I'm glad that that was the big takeaway for you was the haircut. It really was. I think I walked away with the fact that he had very little to offer other than in a magnificent hairstyle. In the year 2004, time travel is a reality. You are charged with violations of TEC code 40.8 time travel with intent to alter the future. And a crime. It turns out going back in time is a pretty easy way to make money. I think you got yourself a shipment of gold and you're taking a general aid. The genie is already out of the bottle. The technology is there. Now, one man... You ever hear the name Aaron McComb? ...is about to take the ultimate power trip. He's gonna be president. You don't need the press, you don't need endorsements, you don't even need the truth. You need money. But to enforce the laws of time... Are we still together in ten years? Am I dead? One man is determined to stop him. I cannot go back to save her. This scumbag is not going back to steal money. Stay here, Walker. My future, you're dead. This movie was directed by one of my favorite underrated directors. You know, you have a sort of subgenre of directors and maybe you really, really like, but they, yeah. a lot of people don't know them. The guy that directed this, his name is Peter Hyams. Yes. And he's done a few really good movies, which would be something like 2010 for me. 2010. Yeah, Capricorn One. Capricorn One's a good one, yeah. Outland is very, very good. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's basically High Noon in Space with Sean Connery and Running Scared with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. So these are all pretty quality movies. He's also done some interesting, odd failures, something like Narrow Margin with Gene Hackman or End of Days with 
<laughs> with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you remember that? That one? is a dreadful movie. That might be a future <laughs> episode for sure. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> okay. Well, well, it might be my future episode for sure. <laughs> also, didn't Peter Hyams do Stay Tuned? Yeah, he did with John Ritter and Pam Dauber. Yeah. yeah. What a zany, crazy, weird movie that is. Yeah, he's got a really interesting resume. And he did, interestingly, two of his worst movies. One is about time. Okay. It's called The Sound of Thunder. And then another movie that he made with Jean-Claude Van Damme is called Sudden Death. And they're both pretty terrible. So here we've got... Sudden Death is a bad, bad <laughs> That's what I'm movie. saying. I actually think Sudden Death killed Van Damme's golden age of filmmaking. From, I think, about 88 with a blood sport through Sudden Death. Sudden Death killed it. That was the end. After that, it was just that, like, the quest and Legionnaire and all that flea market yard sale bin garbage that he did after that. Until JCVD, where he kind of reclaimed brought himself. Brought it all back. Right, yeah, brought it all yeah. back. And then, interestingly, he teamed up with Hyams' son, John Hyams, who directed a movie called Enemies Closer. And Peter Himes was the director of photography for the movie. And it's the interesting thing about Peter Himes is he shot from about 1984 on, he shot all of his own movies. Wow. And he actually has a real stylized look and feel to his films. He deals a lot in shadow. And then he also has a very misty, diffuse light that he likes to put in his movies Frequently, everything seems a little foggy, like as the smoke machines are always going. I really, really like Peter Himes as a cinematographer. I like him well enough as a director. This movie has a lot of talent behind the scenes. And it sort of read it as a who's who of people that I admired when I was a kid. Wow. So you had, yeah, you had the head of Dark Horse Comics, Mike Richardson, who was on as producer, because this was based on a comic book that he originally came up with. Right. And the writer of the comic book, Mark Verhaden, is actually the writer of the screenplay. And Verhaden wrote for Dark Horse Comics a number of sequels to James Cameron's Aliens. Dark Horse had a long run of Aliens comics that I, I loved. But anyway, uh, Time Cop also has his producers, Sam Raimi from the Evil Dead series. Of course. And his longtime producing partner, Rob Tapert. So, you know, you've got all these really interesting people behind the scenes. You got Hyams. And then on screen, you've got some really good people. You got Mia Sarah, who played Sloane in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Lily and Ridley Scott's Legend. You got Bruce McGill, who played Jack Dalton on MacGyver. I know. I, I forgot Bruce McGill was in this movie. When I was looking, it was so exciting. You got Gloria Rubin in here, who was been nominated for Emmys for her work on ER. And you even have like... You even have Ron Silver, who I always thought was like a, a, a poor man's Al Pacino, but I know you know from the West Wing. Absolutely. The late Ron Silver. Man, Ron Silver had a I run, know. didn't he? He had I some know. really great roles. You know, he never broke into the mainstream. He was never one of those actors that your general movie-going audience knew who he was. But I think for movie geeks, when he popped up in a movie, you knew you were about to get something a little a little out there. Ron Silver was always amped up just a little bit more than this screenplay called for. He was just doing his Ron Silver thing. No matter how shitty the role or how low rent the movie, he was always going to bring Ron Silver to the screen. 
And he really did in Time Cop, let me tell you. He's just a slimy-ass character. But you have, so you have all this behind-the-scenes talent. You have great on-screen supporting talent. But then you have to put it all on the, the shoulders of the muscles from Brussels. <laughs> and I have to tell you, Jean-Claude Van Damme just doesn't have the chops. Really? He's... Really? <laughs> I would... I wouldn't have expected you to say that. I thought I thought for sure when I picked Time Cop, you were getting a, a real star-making performance here. I'm shocked. It's the accent where Schwarzenegger could somehow manage to work it into his roles and make it work for him, even without any explanation. Here, we even get a bit of an explanation why he has, he did, not why he has an accent, but that he has an accent. So it's sort of acknowledged. Smart kid. He read my mind. With your English, he doesn't have much choice. Hey, I know all the good words. <laughs> you, you can see him approximating everything that he needs to land, but he never quite does it. And so by the end of the movie, you really do feel as though you wanted somebody else in, in the lead role. <laughs> Almost <laughs> perhaps anybody else in the lead role. <laughs> the filmmakers tried really hard with him. I feel like surrounding him by this really good supporting cast, even Peter Himes, what he did, he lights, he has this one scene where Jean-Claude Van Damme is standing in a doorway to a darkened room. So he's lit from behind. He's just silhouetted. You can't see his face. You can't really see what he's doing. And I'm like, this is how you deal with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you shoot him in shadow and just like, yeah, it'll be fine. But, you know, it's not really all his fault. And I think it's important to talk a little bit about the story. So let me give you a quick rundown on that. Can I, can I guess? Does he just, does he, does he cop time? Is there time copping? Is he a cop in time? Kind. It seems like, yes. it seems like a movie where maybe the entire plot is the entire title. Yeah, it is. <laughs> sort of. Um, it has Van Damme as a DC cop named Walker, who is uh, in love with Mia Sarah's Melissa. And after a surprisingly gratuitous love scene, Walker and Melissa are attacked in their home by thugs. Mm. Walker is shot. He's left for dead. And apparently Melissa is killed when their home explodes. Oh. <laughs> so you fast forward about a decade later and Walker works as an enforcer for the Time Enforcement Commission to protect the past from tampering. And the commission is overseen by Senator Aaron McComb, played by... Ron Silver. There you go. If you have a shady, shitty senator, Ron Silver is your guy. Well, let me tell you, we have to give Time Cop a pat on the back for its frighteningly accurate look into the U.S.'s political future. Oh, my. The country's going down the drain because of the special interests. We need someone in the White House who's so rich, doesn't have to listen to anybody. This is 1994 that this movie was made. You know, we're going on 30 years, and here it was. They they saw it coming. Oh, build a wall and make a time cop pay for it. <laughs> it's terrifying to think we got a Ron Silver villain in the actual White House. Yeah, it seems that way. So regardless, this senator, he's a slime ball, and it's revealed he's responsible for the death of Melissa, which leads to a crazy two Van Damme for one climax back at the exploding house from the beginning. <laughs> oh, a double duper. Do we have a Bill and Ted situation here? He like he goes back and sees himself in the blowing yeah. up house? Oh, yeah, he totally right. does. He totally does. A little bit of that. 
I don't know what this paints me as other than probably a really, really horrible filmmaker. But I made a movie called Twice Upon a Time. And I couldn't put my own movie on bottom five time travels. I would have allowed it. it. You could have done it. I would have allowed it. (laughs) But what's very strange is the ending of my movie involves trying to save the protagonist's fiance during what looks like a rainstorm. And there's two versions of the character. That, sure. That are, you know, okay. and it, it's, it was so similar at the end of Time Cop to my own movie. I felt as though I must have somehow seen it and copied it, but I had written it well before. So I just. Do you have a lawsuit possible against Time Cop? Maybe, maybe Time Cop owes you some, some big old intellectual property money. Mm. I somehow doubt it. I ran dozens of simulated launches, but I, I never noticed that wall before. Simulated? Yeah, this is my first real launch. Great. Don't stick your head out of the window. She's a little shaky. Blood pressure's gonna loosen her teeth and her pulse is pushing 140. She farts, she'll get ahead of the pod. I think it's important to mention that in the middle of the movie, you have this great character that's played by Gloria Rubin, who hilariously rides shotgun with Walker when they go into the past. And they end up getting dumped into a pond. And Gloria Rubin's character is... In a sheer shirt, and it's very clear that she's very wet and very cold. Oh. And at one point, and they kept the take, Jean-Claude Van Damme looks not at her eyes, but directly at her chest. Wow. (laughs) There's another scene between McGill and Van Damme, and they're talking in an office. And then all of a sudden, they cut to a woman thoroughly and completely naked, lying prone on a bed. And she moves toward the camera and seduces the camera. And then all of a sudden, we're back in Time Cop land. And McGill slaps the guy who runs all of the Time Cop launches across the head. He's just this nerdy, long-haired douche guy who's watching porn, I guess, on the job. Damn it, Ricky. I catch you fucking this machine again, I'll break your neck. Sorry, Chief. Looks like safe sex to me. That's when you're supposed to just turn a movie it's off. Just, you're like, you know what? I got other things to do in my life than listen to this. I am done. I got to tell you, the love scene at the beginning with Mia Sarah, although there's a part of me that's like, oh, indeed. There's another part of me that's like, this really is uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of shenaniganry you'd expect in a movie from like 83 or 84 or something like that. Maybe not from something in 1994, although... It, that was around the time of the erotic thriller. So maybe maybe nudity really was just <laughs> like, just throw it in there and see if it helps make the money. Is there ever a time when nudity is not popular? We're living in it. I mean, you don't see it in major motion pictures the way they used to put it. Where's my time cop machine? That's a time I don't want to live in. Maybe maybe peak modern nudity was Jason Siegel's swinging dick right. in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. That's where we're at now. If anything, we've gotten rid of the, the creepy part of all that weird, unnecessary nudity. Do you know who I think did it? Robert Altman did it in Shortcuts, his movie Shortcuts with Julianne Moore, where she has an entire scene with no pants on and she's arguing. When When that scene came out, I think it changed a lot in people's thinking. Now, granted, that was some years back. And now we're just hanging dong for no reason. And I think it's hilarious. So 
maybe we have the wrong topic for our podcast. I feel like new jitsu might have been a better a better thing for you and I to discuss. Then really no one else would be listening, but we'd at least know what we were talking about. What the hell's going on here? You're lucky you got back. They're getting ready to tear up these tracks. The time travel tech is so dumb. They get into these crafts that look like one of these shuttlecrafts from Star Trek, the old 60s Star Trek. Like it's probably made of really cheap balsa wood. <laughs> sure. <laughs> they get inside these things. It has a giant ass jet engine on the back of it. And they shoot towards a wall like it's Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> okay. And then, and then it ripples with early CG. And then amazingly, they come out the other side, not in the vehicle. They just drop. Oh. But yet somehow when they go back, they come back in the vehicle. <laughs> Is there possibly a time cop valet that picks up their time cop machine and parks it for them in the time? Is that what's happening? It would make more sense if there was. <laughs> the way that it is isn't explained at all. So as I mentioned, this was at the, the very advent of CG for film. And, and this movie was pretty low budget. But that said... Hyams is a good enough director that there's one scene that I really wanted to point out where Ron Silver actually talks to himself. But rather than doing some sort of silly split screen or something like that, which is just so passe, Silver actually walks from behind and then in front of himself and does it round while acting with himself. And it is a really nicely done, convincing shot. And at the end of it, he has this great line. Never interrupt me when I'm talking to myself. It's oh, just, boy. But no, it's, it was a quality. It was quality. It was really good. Yeah. <laughs> However, by the end of it, it, you know, there's a scene where one of the one of the characters comes in contact with his past self and essentially turns into. Did you ever go to Five Below and buy the slime that comes in like a, a container for your kids? Yeah. Oh, like like Gak. Yeah, it's like a gack. Okay. Yeah, exactly. More or less, this character just turns to gack with teeth. <laughs> it's just really, oh, gross. It's really nasty. So, so that's what happens when you meet yourself? You just melt? You just, you just basically melt. It looks horrifically painful and fake, but you know. <laughs> so listen, I can't recommend Time Cop, but I can say that I did enjoy it. The solid supporting cast, good cinematography, snappy, quick-moving screenplay with nice plot twists. You know, I think it makes a fun way to blow 90 minutes without feeling too bad about the time spent. I can tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed Time Cop the year it was released on VHS in what is one of the greatest cinematic weekends of my entire life when I was sleeping over at my grandparents' house and I convinced my grandmother to take me to the local convenience store where she had a very friendly relationship with the proprietor. I tried to convince her he was selling weed out of that store. She got really mad about it. But in that weekend, I rented both Time Cop and The Crow and watched them over and over and over again until it was time for me to go home. Maybe one of the greatest weekends of my entire life. You probably watched that one scene over and over and over again. <laughs> I would, I would, uh, yep. <laughs> You're definitely right.
Jason, thank you for taking Time Cop so seriously. I knew if I could count on anybody to just Time Cop the shit out of this episode, it was going to be you. If it doesn't work, we'll just travel back with our see-through shirts or whatever we got on and fix it all. But for now, I'd like to move us forward into the next segment. We're going to do our bottom five time travels, a segment that I know we had a little bit of a hard time pinning down what that might have meant. I'm going to guess we have very different interpretations of what does and doesn't count as time travel, but I'm interested to hear what direction you went with this list. My direction really was a combination of the method of time travel that is utilized as being incredibly stupid or the rationale, the reason for the time travel to be incredibly stupid. Not necessarily okay. the time travel itself being stupid or something that they do, although there's plenty of that here as well. So with that in mind, my number five is a perfect example of the stupid method. And that's from a movie from 1978, directed by Richard Donner and starring... Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, Gene Hackman, and Ned Beatty. That's right. I'm talking Superman, baby. Wow. And and what's amazing to me is that Superman was written by a coalition of really strong screenwriters, including Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, and he won an Oscar for The Godfather, too. And Robert Benton, who won not only an Oscar for writing, but also one for directing for Kramer versus Kramer. Both of them contributed to the script, and yet... That's insane. And yet, it has truly one of the dumbest ideas ever in its third act, where Superman has to try to save Lois Lane after her car falls into a ditch during an earthquake, and he flies the opposite way that the Earth rotates in space so fast that he makes the Earth then spin backward, which in turn creates (laughs) reverse time (laughs) so that he can go back and he can save Lois Lane. And to me, that is probably the dumbest idea that I've seen for time travel, period. The fact that Earth's rotation has zero to do with time has a lot to do with it. Right. (laughs) But also, if you just think about the kind of havoc that that would create, He's trying to save essentially one person. I'm sure there are other people in California that he's trying to save as well. But there's 5 billion or so people on the planet in 1978. (laughs) Like, can you imagine being the guy that won the lottery or something? I like that your big problem here is the logistics of it and not the fact that turning the earth on its axis the other way would be like slamming into a brick wall at a trillion miles an hour. (laughs) Just everybody would fly off. The earth would just peel off of its core in an instant. (laughs) I don't have to have an advanced science degree to know that that's true. (laughs) But apparently you also don't have to be uh, an accomplished screenwriter to know that that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, that's exactly right. I wasn't going to go with the science end of it. I was just thinking more about what would happen to people on the planet. Like if they all of a sudden had to redo what they just did. Like imagine, you know, some guy in Florida is wrestling gators on the worst day of his life or something. (laughs) He's going to wrestle them all over again. Oh, not again. Well, just all the kids taking their SATs that day. Exactly. Exactly right. I only have two questions. Will you accept my resignation 
for having not thought to put this on my own list because it might be the best pick possible. Yeah. And number two, how is this not your number one? Mm. Because there's more. <laughs> wow. I'm going to make my number five short and sweet because it's probably the most obvious one. But for me, getting hit on by your own mom certainly deserves a mention. And so Marty McFly, having to fend off the advances of his thirsty teen mom, lands on my list. It's a terrible situation for Marty, but it's great for the audience because we get some really great comedic moments out of this scenario. Marty's mom grabbing his thigh under the dinner table and naming him Calvin because she's seen him in his tidy whities There's a great little nugget there where she puts his tidy whities on her hope chest. I love that little bit. It's not really drawn any attention to it, but I think it's funny. I love the gag, but if I was Marty, I'd be friggin' horrified. It's the easy pick, so it's here at number five, but I'd be negligent for leaving it completely off. Marty McFly getting hit on by his own mom. I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. My number four is from a 1980 movie that maybe not a lot of people know called The Final Countdown. Uh, stars Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen, Charles Durning. The essential story of it is pretty high concept. You take a modern day fully loaded aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz, and send it through a portal in the Pacific Ocean to about the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is really convenient, obviously. <laughs> and what essentially happens is nothing. They end up <laughs> they end up debating whether they should use modern military might to stop the attack on Pearl Harbor. They decide that they're going to do it, and then they get pulled back into another vortex, and that's the end. Now, why do I love this movie? Because I do. Even though I acknowledge it is it is dumb, it is pretty boring, and it is terrible. When I saw it at age five, I was a huge fan of the movie The Black Hole. Yes. And I saw this movie, The Final Countdown, at a drive-in. And I remember running back to my mother and going, Mama, 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 it's just like the black hole, except it's a blue hole. <laughs> Which sounds really porny, I know. <laughs> but the truth is, it it looked like something out of, a, out of a concert for White Snake or something like that. It has this circular wall of smoke with this really sharp beam coming through it that casts long shadows. Just super cool. So I was super into it, but it is kind of a boring movie. <laughs> so that would be my number four pick. Jason, I don't know that I've ever seen The Final Countdown in its entirety. It's one of those things that I'm sure I bopped in and out of it on TV a couple times, but never actually sat down to watch. It sounds like maybe I'm not going to, but I do want to watch The Black Hole again. So thank you for that. <laughs> it turns out that I have a very slippery definition of time travel. I think... I considered time displacement, and so it didn't require quantum mechanics for me or a time machine. Rip Van Winkle falling asleep and waking up years later would fall into my idea of time travel. Maybe that's bullshit, but it is what it is. If you don't like it, you can go back in time and try and change my mind. But for my number four, I think a solid argument could be made that this doesn't count as time travel, but I challenge somebody to tell me what the hell else it could be? I'm going with Phil Connors, played masterfully by Bill Murray, living his life over and over again in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, in Harold Ramis's 
Groundhog Day. I think that if I were to time cop you and take umbrage to any of this, I think I would have to say that this is one of the best time travels. And it is a time travel for sure. It's certainly one of the best time travel movies. This might be a top 10, maybe even top five favorite. It's definitely my favorite Bill Murray performance. Again, it's a movie I think is fantastic, just like Back to the Future, but man, I feel for Phil. This day sucks. It sucks from the moment he opens his eyes to I've Got You, Babe, on the clock radio every day, to having to report to the same D-list holiday over and over again as an on-site weatherman. He's experiencing the death of that sweet old fella over and over again. He's helpless to stop it. It's a shitty day. The reason I'm certain it belongs on a bottom five is twofold. One, Harold Ramis has said that he estimates that Phil relived that day for about 10 years in total. 10 goddamn years in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. I've been to Pennsylvania. And apart from maybe the coolest drive-in theater of all time, shout out to the heroes at the Mahoning Drive-In in uh, Mahoning, Pennsylvania for keeping the drive-in alive and suffering through life living in Pennsylvania. Apart from that, a weekend in Pennsylvania is one day too many. Never mind 10 fucking years. And second, Phil goes on this montage bender of trying to commit suicide over and over and over again, rather than spend another day living that life. Trying to repeatedly kill yourself seems like a pretty clear indication that it's a bottom five time travel for the character. And for those reasons, Groundhog Day made my list. Yeah, I don't need to high kick you into the next century then. I definitely agree with you. Probably the worst day ever to be reliving over and over again makes for a really bottom five time travel itself. For sure. For sure. Yep. That does make sense. My number three is a movie from 1985 called My Science Project, starring John Stockwell, Daniel Von Cernick, and a hilarious Fisher Stevens, as well as a completely bonkers Dennis Hopper doing thorough self-parody at this point, and Richard Mauser in a small role as a sheriff because it bears mentioning uh, because he's Richard Mauser. Um, it's directed... He keeps coming up, doesn't he? We keep finding ways to insert <laughs> to find Richard way. Mauser. It's, I'm going to find as many ways as I can to always put Richard Mauser into an episode of Fumjitsu. Was there ever a Richard Mauser, Jack McGill movie? Because that's the one I want. I want Lethal Weapon, but with those guys in the lead. That's what I want. <laughs> My Science Project was directed by Jonathan R. Betwell. Uh, it was released the same year as Back to the Future, Weird Science, and Real Genius. Oh. But My Science Project somehow wasn't as successful. Uh, I think that's probably due to the fact that it lacks character, charm, warmth in any real storyline. Audiences like those things. Isn't that weird? Although it does have some totally kick-ass special effects. So there is that. Uh, the story, if you could call it that, concerns a grease monkey high school kid. Stockwell, who is just as boring as he was in Christine, that loves cars more than anything else in the world. He has to figure out something for a science project for his teacher, who's played by Hopper, uh, or else he'll fail. So he and his best bro break into a military junkyard and obtain some kind of extraterrestrial animated electricity sucking machine. Uh, it looks a little bit like a Tesla plasma globe smashed into the center of an 80s boombox. Neat. So, and, you know, in other words, totally sweet, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I want one. <laughs> so, 
Anyway, they turn it on and Hopper decides to plug it in and it creates a rip in time space. And the unique idea here is that rather than the lead characters traveling through time, they're surrounded by period set pieces like a gladiator battle, a Vietnam firefight, and a rampaging T-Rex. Time travels to them. Whoa. So I thought that that was kind of a neat idea because you can't really maybe necessarily screw with the timeline. Right. Or maybe you can because you're removing things from the past. I don't know. It's like time tourism. Anyway, it's all pointless. <laughs> and it results in the time-space rip becoming increasingly dangerous as it consumes more power, which results in Stockwell, Fisher, and Stockwell's nerdy new girlfriend literally racing in a muscle car electricity that's traveling through power lines. Wow. <laughs> why would you do that? Why would you why would you think that's the idea? These are some truly bonkers time shenanigans. And while I am a fan of the movie, uh, it's just really good, dumb fun. I can't recommend it to anyone who has any shame or, you know, who likes to think during a movie. (laughs) So that's my number three. My number three is another pretty rough day. And again, it's kind of a living the same day over and over again. I don't know why that resonates with me so much with time travel. I'm starting to think maybe I have a very poor understanding of what time travel actually is, but I'm blaming that on you because uh, you picked the bottom five topic for this episode. I No, I, what? No, I didn't. Did you just try to time cop? Or did I just travel back in time and change the past? So you did pick the bottom five. See what I did there? No. You should have seen that coming. No, you it's did. your fault. No. Anyway, time travel. Thank you. My pick uh, for this scenario is the film Happy Death Day where the main character named Tree is murdered by a masked slasher type killer on her birthday and wakes up to start the day over again. She then has to get murdered over and over and over again in increasingly silly and creative and fun ways until she can figure out who the killer is and prevent her own murder. Final destination meets Groundhog Day. Exactly. Exactly. I haven't caught up with it, but now you're making me want to see it. Uh, Although that does sound like a definite bottom five time travel shenanigans. What a shitty day. Over and over getting murdered on your birthday. Yeah, for sure. There's a sequel that was unnecessary, but also fun. I almost would have preferred that they just kind of left it alone. It was almost like they got a little too big for their britches and, and had so much fun making the first movie that they made the second movie. You can watch it, don't watch it, but... The first Happy Death Day is really a pretty fun flick, and I think at least it qualifies as my idea of time travel. Well, my number two will come as no surprise to you, Mike, but it might surprise some of the listeners. The Exotic Time Machine (laughs) from 1998, directed by Felicia Sinclair, which I'm about 75% sure is a pseudonym for Uber indie producer, director, writer, toy lover, Charles Band. Oh. As this was a production from Band's Surrender Cinema label. The name sort of sounds like it was stolen off a poster for burlesque night at a local dinner theater. (laughs) Sure enough, yeah, you know, this is a softcore flick, something that if you were lucky enough to grow up in the 90s, you'd find on late night Skinamax or Cinemax or Showtime or whatever. (laughs) Or you could have been at my house where we didn't have any of those pay channels, so you just had to try to watch through the fuzz to see if if it was a boob or an elbow. You were never sure. man. If you heard some heavy breathing, you'd just stop on the channel and try real hard to stare through it. I'm pretty sure we've never sounded older than we do right now. There's a whole bunch of people like, what are they even talking about? This is... 
Doesn't matter. Oh, this this is for us. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're not here for plot, but if you insist on such things, the exotic time machine, which, by the way, should not be confused with the vastly inferior erotic time machine from New Jersey's seduction cinema. <laughs> I'll make sure to I'll, I'll make note of that. Thank you. It finds Leon, a scientist or something, and his helpful assistant, Daria, working on a time machine. And Leon accidentally is sent to the past after they get it on and ends up in 1700s France, where he, of course, bangs Marie Antoinette. Like you do. (laughs) Meanwhile, Daria, she attempts to go back and get him in the past. She goes too far back and ends up in the time of Scheherazade in the Tales of a Thousand One Arabian Nights. So she ends up seeing Shahrazad in Aladdin bang before picking up her kit and heading to gangster era Chicago, where we see Al Capone bang his mistress. This is like a really gross version of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Except not gross at all. <laughs> it's actually really hot. No, it's not hot at all. I'm just kidding. It's a little hot. It's a little hot. Uh, <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. Gabriella Hall. Let's just say that I really liked late night television in the 90s and Gabriella Hall was one of these one of these women that I absolutely would have stopped dead in my tracks no matter what was going on just to watch uh, absolutely beautiful gorgeous woman the movie the movie's best described by a letterboxd user named Alita McFly who commented that movies like these use sex scenes the same way musicals use songs and that it's <laughs> that's about as apt an observation as you can make because the entire plot and everything else stops in a musical so that they can do a song. That is exactly what happens with sex scenes in this movie. It's just, they're just there. They, they abruptly stop everything. Two people bang. And then we move on. A film jitsu first. We finally had a softcore film make its way into a bottom five list. It was only a matter of time. It seems a little crazy that it took you this long. Yeah, it is a little surprising. I am. I'm surprised. My number two is almost the worst travel in time that I can possibly think of. It has to be Luke Wilson being frozen by the U.S. government and forgotten for 500 years before waking up in the America were presented in Mike Judge's 2006 film, Idiocracy. I have to think the worst part of this movie is how this America so closely represents the America we actually live in today in 2022. Like we were saying in Time Cop, Ron Silver frighteningly prescient, right? Yeah. We only get closer and closer to living in actual idiocracy all the time. From President Dwayne Alizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, played with full gusto by Terry Crews, and perfectly mimicking what I suspect goes on in Donald Trump's head, (laughs) to a lawyer named Frito Pendejo, right down to the most popular show on television being something called Ow My Balls, which is just 30 minutes of people getting kicked in the crotch, The movie's like, it's like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World on methamphetamine in Four Loco. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it. Luke Wilson's character, Joe, is selected by the military because he's the world's most average man, mathematically speaking. And 500 years later, when he wakes up, he is now the smartest man in America. He's immediately arrested. 
he meets the aforementioned Frito Pendejo and sets off to find a time machine that'll take him back to his own time. Instead, he finds himself whisked off to the White House, where he's made Secretary of the Interior and charged with fixing the problem of the nation's failing crops, because it turns out they've been watering the crops with Brondo, which is an energy drink Gatorade. rather than water. Yeah, right. Uh, He's thanked for his efforts by being sentenced to die in a monster truck derby. So I'll ask you this, Jason. Is this not just about the worst possible travel in time? And moreover, is it not made that much worse by the fact that we're pretty much living full on in idiocracy right now? Yeah, I think what I find very interesting about idiocracy is the reason that my oldest son is alive is that movie. I wanted to have more somewhat intelligent people having children instead of just all the dumb people having children. (laughs) So I decided I had to suck it up and take one for the team and have a kid because I was not immeasurably stupid. So, (laughs) you know, I'm not saying I'm some great white hope here, but I will say that I definitely, a factor in his conception was... Let's make a kid so we can stop the tide of idiocracy. Yeah, you don't have any Duck Dynasty t-shirts or anything, right? You're at least that far ahead. Not that you're aware of, Mike. (laughs) As the 21st century began, human evolution was at a turning point. Natural selection, the process by which the strongest, the smartest, the fastest reproduced in greater numbers than the rest, A process which had once favored the noblest traits of man now began to favor different traits. That's a solid pick and definitely among the worst possible outcomes if you're traveling through time. I can only think of a couple that are worse, so I'm going to be very curious to hear what your number one is. My number one is kind of a cheeky pick, and it's not truly a terrible movie, but it has a terrible central concept that revolves around it's time travel. And that is The Tomorrow War from 2021, a very recent movie directed by Chris McKay, who's best known for Lego Batman 1 and 2, and who I think works better with Legos than he does with human beings, as this was his live action debut. Uh, I think it's important to note also that this movie cost over $200 million to make. Whoa! It's, it's about a high school teacher named Dan. He's played by Chris Pratt, who's likable, you know, and good and every day. And he strives for something bigger in life and he gets his chance when soldiers fighting a future war against deadly aliens arrive back in time and basically draft Joe Schmoes like him to be cannon fodder because the human race is down to about half a million people left. This is where I kind of I have quibbles with it. Number one, they're using everyday people via a lottery and who were going to die anyway as chum to hold off the alien bad guys. And that's just such a super awful concept. <laughs> that's real bad. You're going back in time. You're telling them that the human race is dying and you need to give up yourself because you're going to die anyway. So you might as well So just come on and go. Clearly, we're not in butterfly effect territory because we're taking literally hundreds of thousands of people out of time and moving them to the future so that they can die. Right. Like that to me seems like it would have substantial ramifications on the timeline. These people are are going to die, but what happens when they don't die the way they were supposed to? Like, isn't that a paradox too? 
it then, absolutely is. <laughs> None then, of this makes sense. Um, I also wasn't really big on the whole everyman American hero thing. You know, it's just like it's a conservative dream to have the fate of the world lie at the feet of an arm to the teeth chump with more beer gut than a clue. But here's tomorrow war positing that these at-risk blood pressure patients are somehow a future dream team fighting force. <laughs> just no, just no. It doesn't work that way. I still think I might have put Superman first on your list, but I can see why that landed on your list as well. Yeah, Tomorrow War, number one for bad time travel. With my number one pick, I'm both lighting a fuse and extending an olive branch to you, my fine sir. Don't. Did you honestly think no. we'd make it out of a time travel discussion Don't do it. without talking about Terminator 2? <laughs> I may as well release this argument into the wild because it's been the defining oh. disagreement of our 15-year friendship. We have fought and argued and screamed over Terminator versus Terminator 2 more viciously and more frequently than any other topic. It's not even close how much we've yelled at each other about this. We watched every episode of Lost, which is maybe the dumbest time travel thing anybody has ever seen, and yet... With all of that in our head, it is still Terminator that we argue about. We've never come to blows. We've come close. One time, you screamed at me in front of my mother that I am a repulsive pig of a human being, and you were ashamed to be associated with me. Oh, my God. You didn't actually do that. I'm a little upset oh, that you thought that you might have. I was, I was actually just time traveling your ass. I thought to, we time copped it. Yeah, we're going to time cop that and make that true. I, I like that you think that was possible. It tells our audience everything they need to know about the way we've had this discussion. Jay, we absolutely cannot get into the Terminator versus Terminator 2 argument right here. In fact, peek behind the curtain, you and I have agreed that the final episode of Film Jitsu, whenever that day comes, yep. hopefully a good long time from now, we made a pact together that our final episode would be Terminator 2. <laughs> With that said, my bottom five pick here, the number one on my list, is the T-800 traveling through time and being forced to hang out with Eddie fucking Furlong. <laughs> Sir, that is my number one and a gift to you. Time travel, Eddie Furlong, no bueno. But he makes a better dad than any father he could have had. Oh, we're not doing this. We are not doing this right now. This is not happening. Oh, but it is man. it is the case that, that traveling through time and then having to take shit from Eddie Furlong oh. is absolutely yeah. a bottom five it's a, time travel. It's a huge surprise to hear my argument be used by you for your list. <laughs> Mike, it's been a really fun episode. We've done a lot of traveling through time. We've done a lot of looking at different periods of time. But now it's time to come back to the present and give the Film Jitsu audience something good, something to look forward to. And with that, I would love to know what your staff pick is for this episode. Well, this week, I went with a film that I'm almost certain that I have recommended before. And it's a movie that for me is 
one of those friendship test movies, a movie that when I meet a new person or I'm talking to somebody that I discover maybe has an interest in film, I mention this movie to them and then I wait to see if it's something that they fall in love with the way I did. I didn't do this intentionally this week because we seem to be in this habit of having the staff pick somehow relate to the main review, which wasn't really by design, but I am going with a film from 2011 that I absolutely love. Sound of My Voice, directed and co-written by Zal Batmanglij and starring the co-writer Britt Marley. This is, without a doubt, the best time travel film that has ever been made in which you don't actually see time travel. It's an amazing film. Britt Marling is an excellent actress. This film is tense. It's exciting. The idea is that there are these two documentarians who have discovered that there is a woman living in the valley in California that claims to be from the year 2054, and she has essentially started a cult. So there is this cult in the valley, and these two documentarians are going to infiltrate it and, of course, you know, have this big expose. The leads here are played by uh, Chris Denham, who I think people might know from the show Billions, and Nicole Vickius, who I don't know from a whole lot else other than this, but I think she's great in the movie. And, of course, Britt Marling as Maggie, this cult leader. They are whisked off to the compound, and they meet her, and she's charismatic, and she's convincing, and there's all these bizarre, dangerous rituals. There'll be a moment where Maggie is saying something that is unconvincing and silly and absurd, and then she'll twist it in a way that is steadfastly convincing, just in a moment, in a heartbeat. And that's when I realized, yeah, I could fall for a cult. Yeah, sure. I believed what this character just told me. It's a great movie, and the whole idea as it kind of propels you forward is these characters who went in to blow the lid off of this thing going on that same journey that I'm going on as an audience of thinking, maybe there's something here. And then by the end, we get this final third act action sequence where they kind of take off from the compound and you you get not really an answer, but some insight as to whether or not Maggie is from the year 2054. They don't answer the question, but they leave you to decide for yourself. And I can see a read both ways. It's a fantastic film. I really, really love Sound of My Voice. Interesting. It's funny in your mentioning it, I feel like I've seen it, but I can't remember it. So uh, that makes me think I didn't see it because I would have remembered it, right? Who knows? Maybe maybe I've been time-copped into thinking that I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie. Again, I didn't intentionally choose a time travel movie for my staff pick this week, but I'm not backing away from it because it's really just that great. My staff pick is totally different. <laughs> uh, it's uh, directed by Rennie Harlan, who would have a wacky and wild career <laughs> that includes some highs like Cliffhanger and The Long Kiss Goodnight and some serious lows like Driven and The Exorcist, The Beginning and Cutthroat Island and about a 600 other terrible movies. I love Harlan, by the way, for Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which I think is the best of the non-Nancy Freddy movies. Sure. And I also love him for Deep Blue Sea, which will forever have one of the greatest cinema surprises. This movie is from 1990. It is Die Hard 2. <laughs> yes, Die Hard 2. For those who don't know, 
Dire 2 finds everyone's favorite wrong place, wrong time off-duty cop, John McClane, battling terrorists again, but this time in a busy airport on Christmas Eve. Uh, there's lots to love here. I mean, the script by Stephen E. D'Souza really goes for broke. It's always amping up the action. And in William Sadler's icy, steely, and scary, Colonel Stewart gives us perhaps an even badder bad guy than Alan Rickman's uh, Hans Gruber. When Stewart crashes a plane load of passengers to teach the Dulles Tower crew not to cross him, he instantly reached the very top of the villain list. For sure. It is not an easy act to follow Hans Gruber as a villain in a film. Sadler comes pretty close. It's also, I think, really important to note that one of the things that this movie does really well is continuity with that first movie. It doesn't try to hide the first movie. It ties directly into everything. It brought back Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro. And it brings back William Atherton, who we should be ashamed of ourselves, thoroughly ashamed of ourselves for not neither one of us putting him as one of the assholes in our bottom fives. He is a true. It, it, has there ever been an actor in cinema that has played more assholes? You think of him as what was he in Ghostbusters? He played Walter Peck in Real Genius. He played Jerry Hathaway, and of course in Die Hard and in Die Hard 2, he plays Dick Thornburg. <laughs> Maybe the best name for an asshole ever, Dick Thornburg. I didn't include him on my assholes list because I was convinced you were going to pick him from Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. I think it was too obvious a pick, so that's why I didn't for Ghostbusters. But I think he's, he's a better choice for Die Hard than who I picked. So I, I feel like, oh, man, I missed a good one there. You know, I I really do love Die Hard 2 just about as much as Die Hard. It doesn't get as much love every year around Christmas time, but technically it's just as Christmas as Die Hard is. In fact, the last line of Die Hard 2 is Merry Christmas, delivered by Dennis Franz, the airport police chief, as he tears up John McClane's parking ticket from the beginning of the movie. Right. Really great flick, terrific action, wonderful cinematography. It's violent as all get out. <laughs> it is. But a great, great watch. So my staff pick for this week, Die Hard 2. An excellent pick to be sure. I love all those goofy Die Hard movies. Die Hard 2 is so underappreciated because I think all of the things that you love about the first one are there. Only this time they amped everything up in a way that isn't just bigger because it's bigger. It's actually better. It's very thoughtful in the way that they work that character through those situations again. And I love that McLean can't believe it's all happening again. And Holly even has that line where at the very end of the thing, which, why does this keep happening to us? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a time travel piece right there. If you think right, about it, right. it's their own Groundhog Day. <laughs> Okay, Jason, I'm ready. It's that time of the show where you get to extract revenge on me for Time Cop, a movie I suspect you actually loved. 
I, so, I didn't love it. You <laughs> I would say I loved it. I, I would say you loved it. I would say that you loved it. It's clear to me and everyone listening and, and everybody that's ever been alive, past, present, anywhere in the time stream, that it's your favorite movie. It's fine. You can like a movie. It's fine. I think you're confusing time copping with gaslighting, Mike. That's possible. <laughs> so what's it going to be? What's the payback? Mike, as we celebrate or perhaps damn Keanu Reeves for reprising arguably his most beloved role as Neo in the Matrix series, I think it's important to bring up the subject of Reeves' skill as an actor. Mm-hmm. It's been long debated that he's either the worst leading man or just an irreverent original who follows the beat of his own drum. And certainly with those Matrix movies, the John Wick films, the Bill and Ted's, and even his lesser known turns in flicks like The River's Edge or Parenthood, he's been a bit of a critical and audience darling. Absolutely. If I have to watch The Lake House, I'm going to slap the shit out of you. For every My Own Private Idaho, there are probably two or three or four that are more like Bram Stoker's Dracula, a movie in which Reeves is so grossly miscast that it's actually difficult to watch him as he's pummeled by the enormous talents of the inimitable Gary Oldman. Sometimes Reeves is only slightly out of his element, forgivably so, like in Speed or Constantine or my much-beloved The Replacements. Alas, sometimes he's so bad, so cringe, as the kids might say, that the movie itself crumbles all around his wretched performance. With that, Mike, I'm offering you this gift. 2015's Knock Knock. Directed by Eli, you either love me or hate me, Roth. For the record, I am not a fan. Oh, you know I hate this this guy. You know I hate this guy. This one will surely be a patience tester, as I've seen it myself, and I can attest. I will confess to knowing almost nothing about this film. Well, this doesn't usually happen in the reveal section of a a film jitsu episode, but I'm going to have to ask you, what is it about? It's essentially a home invasion type story. Okay. Yeah. And we'll leave it at that. Well, it begs the question, what's the bottom five? Bottom five lead performances by a superstar actor in a film. So... Then I have every movie ever to choose from, and I have to find the worst five of every lead in every movie ever. Lead superstar. Okay. All right. You're going to give a qualifier. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I did. I gave a qualifier, and I think that that's the key. So we're talking about a Tom Cruise. We're talking about a Harrison Ford. We're talking about a Keanu Reeves. We're talking about, you know, you name it, Adam Sandler, which is... I guess his entire career. Yeah, dis- uh, off the list. Disqualify. <laughs> it's just disqualifying. Somebody that's superstar level has to be an actor. We're not doing ladies this time around. So there you go. I think that I think that narrows it down, but still gives you a very wide field to choose from. I have a couple that popped into my head right away. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to watching a movie that I don't know anything about. That happens to me almost never. So We'll find out. Maybe I love Knock Knock, and and won't that be a boring episode? But something tells me if you picked it for me, that will not be the case. I'm looking forward to our next episode. I hope that our listeners are too. I hope if they're interested, if they have their own bottom five list for our upcoming episode, that maybe they'll email us at mike at filmjitsu.net or jay at filmjitsu.net and tell us 
what their picks are. I'd love to hear that. We want to have a little bit more listener feedback on our upcoming episodes. So please, if you have thoughts on what we talked about today or what we'll talk about next time, send it our way. We're looking forward to it. But until next time, we have been your hosts. I am Mike. I am Jay. We'll see you next time. Well, it begs the question, what's the bottom five? Yeah, what would be the bottom five for that one? That's a good question. I didn't think of it. (laughs) Shit, I forgot. Oh, Santa. Hold on, hold on. Let me think about it. Let me think about it. I had another Bottom five knockers? And I I changed it. No. (laughs) I'm just kidding.